So as we, just before we pray, I'd like to read from Psalm 33, these verses. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in Him, because we trust in His holy name. Let Thy loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us, according as we have hoped in You. Father, we come this morning to ask You in Jesus' name to guide us, to strengthen us, to fill us with the presence of Your Holy Spirit. We trust that He will be here to guide our study and our thoughts. Anoint each of us, Lord, with Your touch today. We need Your presence. We're grateful that you are faithful, and Lord, I pray that you will bless as your word is proclaimed throughout this property today. And Father, I pray for Gorman as he goes over to speak at the Berean Church today, this morning at 11 o'clock. I pray that uh, you'll go with him, you'll help him to remember all the things that he wants to share with the people there concerning the Gideons, and just give him facility. Empower him and, and pray, Lord, that uh, through him you will bless those people and challenge them for the work of the Gideons. Lord, we're grateful that you help us in your work. And we just commit our time together here this morning to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the sixth chapter of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6. We'll read it, verse 12. Now it was told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. And David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent, which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, one of dates, one of raisins to each. Then all the people departed each to his own house. Well, the last couple of weeks we have studied the initial attempt by David to bring the ark from its place in Kirith-Jerim to Jerusalem. And that was in the first part of the chapter. And we will see that that, of course, resulted in a terrible disaster, as uh, we read about when one of the men who, one of the sons of the man who had kept the ark in his house for all those years, Abinadab, touched the ark when it was about to topple off the cart, and, and he died on the spot. And so David decided to park the ark for a while. He didn't know what to do. He was afraid of it. He was afraid of God. And so at that point, uh, he allowed it to rest in the house of Obed-Edom, who was a Levite. And we talked about the significance of that last week. And he heard, as we read in this passage, that Obed-Edom was being blessed by God because of the presence of the ark. So David decided that that blessing should not be confined to Obed-Edom, but should belong to the whole nation, belong to his capital city of Jerusalem. And so he chose 
to move the ark, only this time exactly in accordance with the word of God as it had been given to Moses. And so the ark was moved in the proper manner with all of the proper details being uh, attended to. And so that is what we uh, read about here in this passage this morning. When the ark reached Jerusalem, it was ceremoniously placed inside this tent that David had prepared for it. Now, we're not told what this tent looked like. It was never called the tabernacle. Therefore, it probably was not only not the tabernacle, it wasn't even a replica of the tabernacle. It was simply a tent that David had decided to make in which the ark would be installed. What happened to the original tabernacle? Well, this is not known. The scripture does not specifically tell us what happened to the original tabernacle. Some believe that it was destroyed by the Philistines when they launched their attack almost 100 years before and when they captured Shiloh, which was where the tabernacle had been located. Remember, the ark itself had been taken out to battle and had been captured by the Philistines, much to their dismay, as time would prove. But it seems that the, the tabernacle may have then been destroyed by the Philistines, or maybe the Israelites took it down real quickly and hid it. We don't know. It doesn't say in Scripture what happened. But it seems that if the tabernacle existed, David would have raised the tabernacle here instead of some other tent, which he chose to raise on this spot. Now, as we read on, we're going to discover that we're told that on the high place of Gibeon, there would be a building which the scripture does call the tabernacle. This particular structure will house the implements of the original tabernacle with exception of the Ark of the Covenant and would be the place where the altar of burnt offering would be placed. But the Ark of the Covenant never resides in that structure on Mount Gibeon, on the site of Gibeon, in that place called the tabernacle. So it's very, very likely that this was a replica of the original tabernacle, not the original tabernacle, which was set up on the high place at Gibeon and housed the candlestick and, and the altar of incense and so forth, but that the Ark of the Covenant remained in Jerusalem where it would be forever because it would, well, not forever, but uh, until it finally disappears, it would be placed in the temple that Solomon would build and the other implements would also be brought to that temple. After installing the ark in this structure that David has erected, he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. He made these offerings as a sacrifice to the Lord for sin, as a sacrifice to the Lord for fellowship. In order to fellowship with the Lord, our sins must be covered by the blood of the Lamb. When our sins are covered, we have access to God and fellowship with Him. And so these sacrifices represented that transaction. 1 Chronicles 15 informs us that the sacrifices that were made after the ark was placed in the tabernacle consisted of seven rams and seven bulls. Following the offering, in a very priestly fashion, now what you're going to discover about David is he is so radically different from Saul. I mean, the opposite end of the spectrum from Saul. And he kind of sets a precedent for the kings of Israel, what they ought to be. David actually, as, you're, as you read in this passage, discover that he acts in a very priestly fashion. He blesses the people in the name of the Lord. And he distributes a gift. The gift is described as bread, certainly meaning the pita bread type thing. 
cakes of dates and cakes of raisins. Now, what is the purpose of this? Why does David, after this has happened, why does he distribute food? I mean, is this bread and wines, that bread and wine, you know, to give to the people to keep them happy? No, I, I think there were at least three reasons why David made this distribution. The first of the reasons is certainly a very practical one. The people were hungry. <laughs> you know, there were no golden arches in those days to go trotting over to, you know, and get your cholesterol fixed. So he instead uh, provides for them, which, which gives you a sense of the fact that he had planned all this. This isn't something he just pulled off at the last second. Oh, by the way, I think uh, maybe I'll go get the ark and bring it up here. No, he planned it all ahead and knew exactly what he was going to do in order for that bread and that, those dates and those raisins to be available and ready for distribution. And so the people, after the, the celebration and the singing and the dancing and, and coming up the hill and bringing the, the ark to Jerusalem, were hungry. And so David met that need. Secondly, it was symbolic. It was symbolic through the bread of the fruit that the blessing of God would be upon the land. The fertility of the land would be blessed because God had been returned to his proper place of centrality in the nation. People were returning to their worship. There was a revival, if you will, in the land. And of course, we have to always be very practical and understanding to know that this didn't touch every heart in the land. There are always are the reprobate individuals. Uh, in the midst of God's actions, there always are those who, who do not submit and who do not cooperate. And then thirdly, just simply as an expression of David's largesse, he is the king. Kings are supposed to bless their people. Kings are supposed to give good gifts to their people. And so David is doing this. We do not have any real examples of Saul doing that. And so David is, is acting in a truly kingly manner. So for a pragmatic reason, for a symbolic reason, and then as an expression of his kingliness, uh, David distributed these gifts to the people. Now, what 2 Samuel doesn't tell us is that after feeding the people, David called for a public worship. Now, as we have been seeing, as we have been going along here, the Samuel and the King's books are paralleled in the Chronicles. And so almost every account in Samuel or Kings can be found, a parallel account can be found in Chronicles. Not everyone, but most of them. And in the parallel account in the 16th chapter of 1 Chronicles, we discover that David, and this is a quote from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, that David appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to celebrate and to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel. And so they've installed the ark, David's distributed the gifts, and now there's going to be a public worship service. We're told in 1 Chronicles that he appointed a Levite by the name of Asaph to be the leader of the musical portion of the worship. And I always like to make that very clear, <laughs> the musical portion. Some people call the music worship, but the worship is the preaching, the worship is reading the word, the worship is prayer, the worship is giving the offering, the worship is the music, the worship is all of it. Bill? Isn't there a, a kind of a difference in that Chronicles deals with the kings of Judah and not the kings of Israel primarily? Oh, yes. But, of course, we're not to that. We're with Edom, who played harps and lyres, cymbals and trumpets, and in this case, the word is not shofar. 
in a musical celebration of what has happened here in the reinstallation of the ark and putting God back where he has always been, and that is in the central position. Then David Lee publicly proclaimed a psalm of thanksgiving. And this is the message, if you will, the message and the prayer. What is interesting is if you go back to the, the early church, there are several individuals, there's a work called the Didache, and there are some others, which gives us the outline of services from the early times. And the outline of services from the early times always included a prayer, always included an um, offering, always included a message, but th there's no mention of music. I'm not saying they didn't have music, but it wasn't mentioned in the basic outline of the second century worship services in, that were held in the Christian church. So, a message, a word from the Lord, a proclamation, a word of thanksgiving, a psalm as it turns out to be. It's actually Psalm 105, but it's also recorded in 1 Chronicles 16, and I would like to read a part of it, of this Psalm of David in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Psalm of thanksgiving that uh, David prays, that David preaches, whatever you want to say. It's a prayer, but of course it's a public prayer. And beginning at verse 8, David says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face continually. Then down to verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth, Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among the people. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared among all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Beautiful words. And of course, we, we know of David as the psalmist, sometimes called the sweet psalmist of Israel. David wrote a, a fairly large portion of the psalms. Asaph, however, this Levite we're talking about here, also wrote several of the psalms. We have to understand them as songs, as prayers, and as inspired by the Lord God himself through these men. Well, the people have had a big day. They have brought the ark from however far the house of Obed-Edom was from, its, from the tent that David had established in Jerusalem. It may have only been a few hundred yards. It might have been a mile or two or five. We don't really know. The scripture doesn't tell us how far it was from Kirith-Jerim to Obed-Edom's house and there from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem. But the distance was not great, no matter how you look at it. And uh, they've had this great celebration. They've installed the ark. They, they've been given the gift of food from David. And they've had a beautiful service together. And so the people are returning home fully satisfied in heart and in stomach. And they return home with joy and with great hope for the future. It's a good thing life doesn't depend on our emotions, isn't it? Because usually when we're an emotional high, you can just count on the fact that a low is coming. <laughs> a low is coming. And so it will be. Let's read on and look at the low. 
Verse 20 of 2 Samuel chapter 6. But, <laughs> all this wonderful stuff, but when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of Israel, of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord and I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken with them, I will be distinguished. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. As you know, Jim Dobson wrote a book, Emotions, Can You Trust Them? And the answer is no. <laughs> if you haven't read the book, that's the answer. <laughs> Save you reading the whole book. <laughs> Emotions are important, and, and I've highlighted that the last two Sundays before. It, it's important that we have emotions and that we worship the God with, with our hearts as well as our minds and that our emotions be involved. But emotions can cover up a multitude of sins, and I don't mean cover them up before God. I mean cover them up in our own eyes and, uh, and kind of blot out what we need to be focusing on. Emotion has played a big role here, and David is on an emotional high, but the enemy is relentless. If Satan is nothing else, he doesn't give up. He keeps coming back. He's always there. Wherever the work of God is going on, Satan is there to try to throw in a monkey wrench, cold water, whatever you want to call it. He is there to try to upset the work of the Lord. You, you all remember the story, and it's used so often, of Elijah, atop of Mount Carmel. And he has this great victory over the priests of Baal. I mean, God answers by fire. The priests of Baal are slaughtered. And then what happens? Jezebel the queen says, I'm going to get you, Elijah. And, and he goes into the tank emotionally and runs off into the desert and says, I am alone out here, oh Lord. There's no anybody else who loves you. So it would be here for David. Only David will react a little differently. In this instance, David is attacked by Satan at the high point of his victory. I mean, this was a glad day for David. Who attacks him? Satan. Who does he use? His wife, Michael. David's high was not only spiritual, it was emotional. And as he returned, he was returning to bless his family. He's blessed the nation, now he's returning to his home, to his palace, if you will, to bless his family. Traditionally, in the society of which we're speaking, when a warrior or a king returned home in triumph, it was the custom of the women to come out of their homes and even out of their towns to proceed towards the returning conquering king or warrior with singing and dancing, expressing their joy at his safe return and displaying their great esteem for him. And you, well, we don't have to go all that far back to remember how the women of Israel did that for Saul and for David, right? And that kind of got things all upset for Saul because they were praising Saul for his thousands, but David for his tens of thousands. But David hadn't even gotten to the door. Michael came out all right, but not with singing and dancing, but with accusations and a display of disgust. In Romans 12, verse 15, we read, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
It's incumbent upon us to love one another. It's incumbent upon us to realize that we are one body. And that is, if one cell hurts, they all hurt. But if one cell is rejoicing, we are to rejoice with that one who is rejoicing. Of course, Satan will often come in at the moment of rejoicing and say, say to our hearts, you don't want to rejoice with them because they got what you should have had, you know, kind of idea. This often happens. But in this case, Michael should have been rejoicing. She should have been rejoicing because the ark was now in a place of honor instead of off in the corner someplace in somebody's house 10 miles from Jerusalem down the hillside. At the very least, she but should have rejoiced that her husband and her king was rejoicing. Notice, though, in the passage, she is called the daughter of Saul. It doesn't say Michael, the wife of David, which she was, but she's called the daughter of Saul, and that's not a mistake. The author is very intentional in calling her the daughter of Saul because he is emphasizing to the reader that she was thinking and acting just like her reprobate father, like father, like daughter in this particular instance. She accused David of unregal and indecent action. Now, some interpret this as meaning that she saw David expose himself to the common women in the crowd. However, gala, which is the Hebrew word here, which is in translated uncovering and in the NIV is actually translated to dis as disrobing, does not necessarily mean a display of physical nakedness. Now, David was wearing two garments. Remember, we find the one mentioned in 2 Samuel, and you go to 1 Chronicles, and there are two garments that he was wearing as he was dancing there before the Ark of the Covenant. And I think that it is only absolutely logical for us to understand that in his euphoric worship of God, David was not zoned out. David was not so oblivious that he put on some kind of a lewd display. I mean, to me, that's, that goes into the same kind of thinking as the people who think that Jonathan and David's relationship was somehow immoral. It's people wanting to impose on the scripture their values and, and you know, excuses for themselves. Oh, I do this and therefore, obviously, David did, so it's okay for me to do it, you know, kind of idea. Certainly, what Michael was really complaining about here was that David was acting like a commoner when he was a king. That his dance reminded her of the dances that were done by low-class drunken fools who were hoping to impress observing low-class women. It was her conviction that since he was the king, he should appear before his people as regal and aloof. Kings are supposed to be that. They're supposed to be distant. I mean, oriental kings in particular, uh, it got so bad in some places where the only way you could ever get before the king is to grovel, crawl on your hands and knees and hope that the king would look down at you and, and allow you to look up at him and speak to him. And then you had to back out on your hands and knees or even crawling on your belly in some instances. He was not supposed to be acting like he was a commoner, like he was one of the people. After all, he's the king. My father, she's thinking in her mind, was the king, and I'm married to the king. Let's act regal around here. Part of the problem, I think, in her mind rested in the fact that the only places in Scripture where acceptable dancing is described or, or recounted, the only dancers are women. There is no mention of any men dancers. Now, I'm not saying there never was any men dancers. I'm just simply saying in the scriptural records. 
of dancing. It was always women who were doing the dancing, except in the case of the golden calf. And of course, that was unacceptable dancing. So that doesn't even fit into this category. So I think part of the problem was that Michael may have viewed David's participation in what was traditionally the woman's role as degrading. You're the king and you're a man. What are you doing this for? It's the ladies' jobs to do this. He could have said to her, well, why weren't you doing it? <laughs> in addition, I think she was upset because what kind of robes was David wearing? Levitical robes, not royal robes. He wasn't wearing the robes of the king. He was wearing the robes of a priest. Remember, she had been raised by the reprobate Saul. She had not been taught to honor the Lord God. She had not been taught to think of the ark as something holy. Uh, Saul almost, in throughout his entire reign, had nothing to do with the ark, except one time he tried to bring it in for a good luck charm. Other than that, he never honored the ark at all, or the God of the ark. And so she learned that well from her father. And seeing her husband parading around in Levitical robes instead of the royal robes of his standing, I think really ticked her off. In 1 Samuel 19, we read this when we were studying through that passage, we saw that Michael even possessed teraphim, household idols. So I think Michael was very much a pagan at heart and not at all committed to the God of Israel. Michael loved the hero type. She loved a man who had killed his giant and about whom the other women were singing, he killed his tens of thousands. And to be attached to such a man was a, was, was a, was a high for her, you know. But she despised a priest type. You know, somebody who went around like a spiritual person and wasn't arrogant and proud and demanding and commanding. Humble. Humility was not her suit. And the fact that David, who was a king, was acting humble and pious, got her goat, especially when he worshiped publicly with such enthusiasm. She couldn't handle it. Well, David is, it does not do the Elijah thing. David doesn't say, oh, no, I, I, no I, she doesn't love me. I'm going to go hide in a corner someplace, you know. In his defense, he proclaimed that he was dancing before the Lord. He was not dancing for the people or for her. And to put her in his place, he emphasized that he was honoring the Lord who had chosen him to be king over her father and her kin. He made it clear that he would not be deterred from celebrating before the Lord who had made him ruler over Israel. God has put me in this place and I will celebrate his majesty, regardless of what you say. Furthermore, he said, I may even be more undignified than this if that's what it takes to keep me humble before the Lord my God. He prophesied that the very women before whom Michael accused him of uncovering himself would hold him in high esteem. Although not specifically stated, I think David is contrasting himself here in his desire for humility with her father Saul, who was anything but humble, who was a man who became so arrogant in his kingship that... He alienated himself from the Lord God of Israel and cost himself and his dynasty, the kingship. Well, we discover in this passage that the Lord God agreed with David because in judgment for her evil accusations against, I mean, think about it now. She is attacking God's anointed king. 
And we've, if we learn nothing else from David, through our study of David, he would not lay a finger on God's anointed. He would not even verbally attack God's anointed. Let God do it, he said. And yet she deigns to assault him verbally and to accuse him of evil action. And so the judgment falls upon her. From God, Michael will remain barren to the day of her death. Again, you have to remember that that was the greatest curse any woman could experience in that society in that day. There was nothing worse than being barren. Her barrenness, I think, partly, of course, resulted from the fact that I don't think David was too keen on, on her presence. And so there was an estrangement that uh, further made it uh, more likely that she would remain barren. Pride had destroyed her father Saul, and pride destroyed Michael. This, this passage clearly demonstrates a spiritual principle that was set forth by Jesus when he spoke as written in Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That's one of the great principles we need to keep blazed in our mind, emblazoned in our mind, because pride is the easiest trap we all fall into. Every single one of us is tempted by pride. No matter how low we may be or how low we may feel, there is still an element of pride that rests within all of us. And learning humility is one of the great keys to serving God effectively. Solomon, I think, may have had this event in mind. Of course, he may have had other things in mind, but whatever it was, I think Proverbs 16 relates to this event, at least in its basic premise. Proverbs 16, let me, let me read at beginning at verse 16. How much better it is to get wisdom than gold, and to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. The highway of the upright is to depart from evil. He who watches his way preserves his life. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than divide the spoil with the proud. And that fits, of course, exactly into this thing because David was accused by Michael for acting like a commoner amongst the commoners rather than being the king he was supposed to be. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide spoil with the proud. I think the Lord speaks to us all the time about this issue. It's why pride is mentioned so many times in Scripture because it's a great stumbling block to each and every one of us. And it is what tears the church apart. Why is it that churches split and groups form that are different from one another? It's usually over pride issues. Arrogant over somebody, oh, you know, I've got the real truth and the rest of you don't have the real truth. It, it becomes a great pride issue and uh, we need to resist it singly, personally, as well as collectively. Well, next Sunday we'll begin looking at chapter 7 when chapter 7 is a, is a wonderful and a powerful passage because David decides it's time for him to do something really great for the Lord and we find recorded in the seventh chapter what is sometimes called the Davidic covenant. A very, very important covenant that not only has immediate but has eternal ramifications and we'll begin looking at that chapter next week.